This is special programming from North State Public Radio. I'm Sarah Bohannon. It's been six months since the campfire started. Tonight, we bring you a special one-hour episode of After Paradise, where we check in with people to see how their lives have changed since the fire. We'll speak with the Paradise Mayor, those who are still living in housing limbo, and students who next year will see their high school close. We also speak with those who have been on the ground doing the work of recovery, including the head of the foundation that's been the repository for charitable donations coming in from across the country, therapists who've been trying to prevent PTSD, and a super volunteer who is still here and helping with just about everything. Today, we'll find out how after six months of pain and suffering, these people are moving forward after the campfire. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. For NSPR News, I'm Mark Albert. With so much going on in terms of recovery, we once again turn to representatives from agencies leading efforts. Earlier today, I spoke with Brian Ring of Butte County, Rebecca Kelly with FEMA, and Colette Curtis with the Town of Paradise. Justin Jacobs with the Governor's Office of Emergency Services leads off. We're making some great progress. Uh, yesterday was six months since the fires, and to date, more than 2,500 parcels have been cleared of uh, hazardous material and fire-related ash and debris. More than 800,000 tons of debris have been removed, and we have 141 debris removal crews operating throughout the county. All right, Brian Ring of Butte County, uh, I imagine there's quite a bit going on in the housing arena. As far as sites that have been completely cleaned and cleared and ready for rebuild, we're at 564 now with uh, between the state program and the and those that are opted into the alternative programs. Rebecca Kelly. FEMA is working very closely with the county on finding housing solutions for the nearly 1,000 campfire survivors and households that we still need to find housing for. As of the 6th of this month, 300 households have been licensed in and in 18 commercial parks across eight counties. This includes 276 households being housed in travel trailers and 24 households in MHUs or manufactured housing units. As you mentioned earlier, Rosewood will be opening shortly. That has 40 mobile housing units. They are one, two, and three bedroom units. The next will be Gridley Estates, which will house 400 households, then Silver Dollar, 61, and Hegan Aztec, 82. I assume that everyone who is on the list for these units is notified and knows that they're um, moving up the, the wait list. Is there anything that uh, people who haven't been notified or who have not been in contact can do to get on that list at this time? Um, they if they haven't spoken to FEMA in the last two weeks, they need to reach out again, see where they are. The only way that the process by which you're obtaining it on one of the sites is through already being registered and verified through FEMA. And if someone has been rejected, they can still appeal that. And if their appeal's been turned down, they can even appeal that, correct? Appeal process is something that they would need to discuss with FEMA directly. It's probably something that they need to um, have a um, conversation with the caseworker and see what can be done to assist them further. 
Colette Curtis, must be a lot going on this week. In the town of Paradise, we have about 150 businesses that are open. And just this week, we had two businesses reopen. Um, one was Westside Pizza on Clark Road and Pence Road Market on Pence, of course. We also are excited to announce that we have now issued 20 building permits. We have about 60 building permit applications that we have that are in plan check right now. And that plan check process from beginning to end is taking about two to three weeks. A listener called in. They said, like many in Paradise, we have a private road. Truck traffic has damaged the road. Is there any program to repair private roads? Cal OES, as well as our you know, FEMA partners, and we're working very closely with local officials as well to you know, figure out a solution to this um, and figure out a way to provide funding to fix this stuff. I don't have the exact specifics, but I do know that we have uh, a group of people actually dedicated to just that topic and focusing on that. So, as so, yes, that is being looked at and uh, discussed, and decisions are being made on that. So, right now, there really is no answer. Well, it's going to be. I mean, I mean, you're working on it, but there's no. They are going to be fixed, but as far as you know, specifically who and where and when, I I don't have those details. But like I said, this is a, a high priority for those focused on the debris mission. All right, we have a second question. I think someone is seeking a position. Where is the list posted for dump truck companies that need qualified California driver's license A drivers? So that would be someone with a commercial A permit. On the ButteCountyRecovers.org website, if you go ahead and you click on the debris removal uh, link, It'll actually take you to all the information on our website uh, with updates on all the debris programs from the alternative program to the state program. And if you scroll down to the bottom, it'll have uh, contractor information and where they post their jobs at. There's also a link to the uh, Alliance for Workforce Development, and they've also been helping uh, find local employ- local employees for these contractors. Thank you all for your time. Thanks for joining us today. All right, thank, thank you. you for having us. I'm Sarah Bohannon, and this is a special one-hour episode of After Paradise from North State Public Radio, commemorating the six-month anniversary of the campfire. Today we look at how Paradise and its surrounding communities are moving forward after the devastation that took place here half a year ago, and we reflect on what those who were displaced have been experiencing since the morning of November 8, 2018. On November 8th, at about 6.30 a.m., the fire is first reported, and they reported... I went out and looked, and you could just see the sky was way different. It felt like apocalypse, like something really, really horrible was happening. As the searchers are going around the properties, sometimes they don't see those holes. We have actually had a couple people drop into septic tanks. We're finding kids have different reactions to the disaster. A lot of behavioral changes, emotional changes, things that parents need to pay attention to in their kids following a disaster to make sure that they're doing okay. We had a housing crisis before the campfire. We really had no local availability of housing units. Cal OES and FEMA absolutely need to take into consideration the neighbors and the neighborhood when they're planning these types of actions. We had no idea how many people needed shelter, uh, how many people were going to find us, but we opened up and let them come in and tried to figure out where to stick them. We are going to rise from the ashes. We are going to be newer and better, and we can rebuild this community together. 
That last voice belongs to Paradise Mayor Jody Jones and was recorded just weeks after the devastation. Jones became one of the most visible faces after the fire as a spokeswoman for her town. She and her husband lost their home on Knightley Lane. Earlier this week, North State Public Radio's Tess Vigland met up with Jones at her burned-out property to hear her story of recovery. Well, Jody Jones, thank you for having me onto your property. Thank you for being here. When you look at this property, um, what do you miss? Oh, the shade trees and the house. (laughs) We had to fell three huge pines and um, three huge oak trees. I mean, 150 feet tall. So the lot was totally shaded. You couldn't see the house with Google Earth before. So it looks really different now. We are standing on your lot, which is in the middle of several lots that still haven't been cleared. What was the process for you to get this done? Well, we went with a private contractor, and so they have um, scraped up all the debris and hauled it off, and then they do a soil sample. That soil sample, one of them, they take them from like six different locations within the foundation. And one of them came back high in arsenic and mercury. So last weekend they scraped more. And now they have to take more soil samples and get them tested again. But once it all comes back clean, then you get a certificate from the county health department um, that says your lot's clean. And then you can apply for a building permit and move on with building your house. So that's where we're going. You did decide to rebuild. Uh, Was that a process for you, or did you know right from the get-go that you'd rebuild on your property? It was pretty much right from the get-go. We actually looked at lots over on the East Canyon, thinking we might want to view lot, but we couldn't find anything that was flat enough and big enough, so we just decided to rebuild on our property. But rebuilding was never in question. I mean, you cannot be the mayor of paradise and not come back. Do you have any sense of when you might actually have a community here again? It's not going to take that long. There's a lot of things going on that are um, keeping that community alive. The um, Paradise Alliance Church is hosting community dinners every Thursday night for everyone living in town. Oh, just a way to get together and keep that going. The Rotary Club has continued to meet weekly since the fire. We're all trying very hard to stay connected in the meantime. When I came up here over the weekend, um, as someone who is not from here, doesn't live here, um, it seemed to me that there hasn't been a lot of progress, just as fresh eyes looking at it, not having been here since December. But... When I said that to you a moment ago, you quite vociferously said, nope, actually, there's a lot of progress. Describe that progress for us. Well, 150 businesses have reopened here on the Ridge. We have restaurants and grocery stores and hardware stores and coffee shops and even a ladies' dress shop that have reopened. The debris removal is going really well, even with five weeks of rain delays. There's 140 crews working. They've cleared over 2,000 lots. There's trucks galore in town. The piles of logs are being hauled off by PG&E. We have 60 applications for building permits and we've issued 13, I believe. There's houses already being framed, so lots of progress. 
When you and I last spoke in December, one of the questions that I put to you was whether the city would take this as an opportunity to rebuild itself in a different, perhaps better way, or whether there would be so much pressure from people who just wanted to get back to their properties and rebuild that you wouldn't have time to do that kind of planning. And at the time you said, well, we basically have eight months, which is as long as the EPA thinks it's going to take to to greenlight everything. Where are you now in that thinking? Well, we've been engaged in a very expedited planning process um, because we didn't have a lot of time. We've had numerous public workshops. We've taken all kinds of public input. We've done a survey. We've had a consultant team come in and help us with that. They're working on their final report right now, which they're going to present to council on May 22nd. They're gonna make recommendations to us about things that we should, should change. And then on June 11th, the council will make decisions and adopt ordinances based on those recommendations. Do you have a wish list of how you would like Paradise to use this to improve itself? Oh, yes. Um, And we're going to have to make priorities, prioritize things, and go after money to do. None of this is cheap, but we need to improve our evacuation routes. I want to see the um, power lines in Paradise undergrounded, which will help us do that, because then we won't have power poles right next to the road, and we can... One of the things that I'd like to see that uh, I think the consultant's going to recommend is that we put parallel walking paths to our evacuation routes that can then be used by emergency vehicles during an evacuation. Hmm. What has it been like for you these last six months? Um, It's kind of a blur. It's been a really, really busy time, at times a really sad time, Um, but I see hope in the future. What have been the greatest challenges for you personally as a victim of the fire? I would say finding enough time to do everything there is to do. Mm-hmm. Trying to rebuild your life after you lose everything in a fire is a full-time job. The mayor, which was a very, very part-time job before the fire, is a full-time job now. So it's just been very, very busy. How do you manage that? How do you get through it? One day at a time. What's the next thing you have to do? You do that. You put your foot forward and take the next step. That's all you can do. That was Paradise Mayor Jody Jones speaking with North State Public Radio's Tess Figland. Thousands of people fled the ridge that day in November. Most of them headed down the hill to Chico. In one day, the population of the city exploded. In terms of shelter, Chico was already in a housing crisis before the fire that has now been exacerbated as those who were displaced search for any type of dwelling they can find. Ed Mayer is the executive director of the Housing Authority of the County of Butte. I spoke with him earlier this week to find out just how bad the current housing crisis is. He started by telling me what it was like before the fire. What we were finding in advance of the campfire, right up to the campfire, was a a market that had a declining uh, housing opportunity, that there were uh, declining vacancy rates, and we were seeing that our voucher holders uh, who were out looking for housing couldn't find the housing. It just wasn't there. So we were really... Uh, struggling with really low vacancy rates, what what I would consider effectively zero vacancy rates. Uh, And of course, we saw 14,000 households displaced from the campfire. So uh, we were blown out, literally. What have you been hearing from people? 
who are looking for housing right now? Oh my, we, we see a lot of customers at our front door and their situations are as varied as the number of individual households that walk in the door. Um, we have a lot of households looking for housing in this area. We know that there's 19,000 people living in Chico who were not there before the disaster. There's, I think, around 4,000 living in Oroville. That's at best count. Um, and they're not living in places fit for human habitation. They're living in travel trailers. They're living in sheds and living rooms and bedrooms, uh, wherever they can. That all has to be unwound. In other words, those households, you know, the 30,000, 35,000 people displaced from paradise are going to have to find a place to go live. Uh, and we have these various layers. Uh, you know, it's one thing to have temporary assistance. Well, temporary assistance only lasts six months. And then then what? Um, the uh, FEMA's manufactured housing units are just now starting to come online. The whole situation is very fluid. Uh, we know that most people don't want to live this, leave this area. I mean, one of the things we hear over and over and over again from households displaced from paradise is that they're deeply rooted in this community. They didn't just lose their homes or their connections to family. They lost their community. Uh, even if we do find housing opportunity in Oregon or Arizona or Nevada, we have a population here that is uniquely suited to Butte County who have been living here for decades. And so that's why we see so many people clustered up in Chico and Oroville. Uh, we see the impacts everywhere in our area, but the one thing we're hearing over and over again is people don't want to leave. They're deeply, deeply committed and deeply embedded in this area. I know that you have a very specific role, but you're, you're working with other people with housing. Um, what do you see the solution as being? I mean, what can be done, what needs to be done in order to house people? Well, I think uh, we need to get very creative in our thinking about how we approach housing development and community growth. You know, we've spent a lot, many, many years, decades, creating a system that really right now is preventing us from providing uh, housing and affordable housing uh, needed by our citizenry. We need to unwind that. We need to think in terms of regulatory relief, uh, of, of uh, changing the way we approach and prioritize properties. We need to emphasize uh, development of a appropriate sized uh, dwelling units because we have this high concentration of seniors and disabled, most of whom are looking for studio or one-bedroom apartments to live in. And what we found was that there's a 10 to 1 demand for every one unit available, there's 10 households waiting to take possession. We have to get very creative with smaller type units, um, accessory dwelling units, or allowing additional occupancy um, on uh, current single-family uh, properties. It's going to take a lot of political will and an enormous amount of education to the public ultimately it's the public that drives the whole policy around how we approach development and our attitudes towards it. Uh, we deal with uh, endemic poverty here and low incomes uh, and uh, poor economic opportunity by and large. So, uh, you know, my concern is being able to um, provide enough housing and enough affordable housing to maintain the stability and viability of our communities. That was Ed Mayer, the executive director of the Housing Authority for the County of Butte. You're listening to a one-hour special of After Paradise from North State Public Radio. When we return, we'll hear from those who still have not been able to find a home.
This is a one-hour special of After Paradise from North State Public Radio. I'm Sarah Bohannon. The deadly wildfire that tore through Paradise six months ago is in the distant past for most of us, but thousands of people displaced by the campfire are still piecing their lives back together, many trying to find a permanent place to live. Reporter Pauline Bartolone has the story of one family that's trying to find peace while they're in housing limbo. Weeks after the firestorm hit, Butte County was still in chaos. Campfire evacuees were in this Oroville parking lot at the beginning of December, filling up shopping carts with free food and clothes from a local charity. That's where I met Jennifer Porter. Uh, I'm trying not to cry, I'm sorry. Um, the emergency department nurse tried to remain stoic as she recounted her escape on November 8th, which forced her to run for her life and leave others behind. We're the fortunate ones, you know. But it's been really tough going for Porter and her two parents, who lost their home, too. The family and their 10 pets have been bouncing around, trying to find more secure housing since November. For a few months, they lived in a room at an animal sanctuary in Grass Valley. They've slept in their cars and then a trailer near a brothel on a relative's land in Nevada. We had one king-size bed, and it was my parents and I sleeping in the bed together with the nine cats and dogs all around us. We aren't willing to split up because we are all we have. Porter is one of at least a thousand campfire survivors who are still looking for stable housing, says Butte County Social Services Director Shelby Boston. She says six months later, many of them are doing anything they can to keep a roof over their head. Where they're sleeping on a relative's couch or in a spare bedroom, Um, I've heard stories of people staying in garages that have been converted. Lots of people I know personally from Paradise and the Ridge who purchased an RV or were loaned or donated an RV and are camping on folks' property. Dozens of other families are still in hotels or living in tents. Boston says they spread out to almost every state in the U.S. But Many, like the Porters, are trying to stay as close as possible to where they once lived, worked, and sent their kids to school. This is my place. (laughs) Um, Jennifer Porter has been inching closer to being settled. She recently bought a used RV and is now living in a trailer park a half hour north of Chico, right on the Sacramento River. Her parents are in their own unit just feet away. Dozens of other campfire survivors and Paradise cleanup workers are here, too. This spring, they had to deal with flood instead of fire. The last time it rained, the water was up to my third step in my trailer. So you open your door and you're literally in the middle of a lake. Porter's two aunts, family friends, and their pets are all here too. They keep each other laughing. They grill food at night and look for houses to buy on their phones. Jennifer's mom, Linda, shows me one option in Tehama County. Scroll through those. It used to be a nursing home. I mean, it's a possibility. We'll go check it out. The family's gotten by on savings and meager insurance payouts, but they don't have enough to rebuild. Jennifer's planning to take out a government loan to buy a place for a handful of her adult family members to live in together. And, um, you know, get everybody moved in and settled and happy and, you know, get my career back on track and figuring out who I am now because who I was is gone and it's like starting over a whole new life. Porter's not sure if she'll go back to paradise. For now, 
She's trying to get on stable ground with the help of a therapist, her faith, and her family. For North State Public Radio, I'm Pauline Bartoloni. RVs, mother-in-law units, couches, spare rooms. Six months after the fire, many are still scrambling for housing, living wherever they can. North State Public Radio's Mark Albert went to the Matador Motel in Chico, where he met Lori Peter Summers, who's been living in a room there with her family since she was displaced by the fire. We had no clue the fire was there. My daughter was walking the grandkids to school, and somebody stopped her and said the school's being evacuated. So they came back home, and I guess my daughter's boyfriend called and said, we got to leave now. Pack now. We need to leave. I got my father up. He was sleeping. We went outside, and it was raining soot. So we found one motel to go to, and then we found this one. And we've been here ever since. We've been looking for a home. We can't find one. I mean, we look daily. But we do have animals, and a lot of people don't take animals. So that's our story. (laughs) We're still looking for a place, and... My granddaughter's been transferred from um, Paradise School to Durham. So she takes the school bus. They meet at Taco Bell, and she takes the school bus every day. How have you been able to handle, you know, downsizing into a... A lot of depression, a lot of lost anger, because everybody's telling different stories about how the fire started. They were saying planes and this and that. We don't know what to believe, PG&E. We're lost. I mean, if I could put one word, it's lost. You don't know where you're going to go, where you're going to live. You had to make your life decision in an instant. I mean, that's the God's honest truth. It's like, where do we go? We don't know where to live. I mean, there's nothing available here, but... I mean, there is maybe sometimes, but it's very expensive. We are lost. We're confused. We're, it, it's a feeling you'll never forget. And it's something, if you haven't lived through it, you don't know what it's like. How about living in a motel room for it's six months? It's pits with five people in the room. There. There's clothes everywhere. I try. I'm a clean person, but I can't. I mean, like two days ago, I said, forget it. I just want to curl up in a ball. I've got my two granddaughters and my daughter and her boyfriend. and I mean, everybody's trying to get along together and stuff, but it's hard. I can't cook. I miss cooking. I got a barbecue with my money. I got a barbecue, and I barbecue when I can, and we have a microwave. And that's what how we deal with it, you know, and go out, and I hate fast food. I hate it. <laughs> that's what I've grown into now, and I've gained, like, 30 pounds because, <laughs> look at me. <laughs> I just want a home for all of us. I want all of us to be happy, a family again. And it's hard to do that 
when everybody's getting on everybody's nerves and it's it's not right. I mean, I, I feel like somebody did this fire purposely. I really do. But it sucks. It really sucks. I mean, I feel what other people feel on Facebook because they're feeling the same way I am. I'm not alone. There are so many people that can't sleep and I, I can't sleep. I brought, my, oh, by the way, I did get my husband. I have his urn in the room. Um, I didn't forget his urn. I remembered the dogs and our family, and that's all that counted. That was Lori Peters-Summers speaking with North State Public Radio's Mark Albert. One of the biggest concerns over the last six months has been how children have been affected by the disaster. I was introduced recently to two high schoolers, Ashlyn Miley and Abby Brown, who made a podcast about their experience being displaced from the fire for a class project. During it, they found out that their school, Achieve Charter High School, is going to have to shut down next year. I spoke with them about what the decision meant for them. It's not been an easy six months, I will say that. And I feel like people who haven't experienced, like, what we're going through, it feels like it wasn't even that long ago. Like, the pain and everything that's going on with getting a house and trying to get your normal life back together, it is never going to be the same. At school, there's no one that hasn't gone through this. So everyone at school has gone through the same thing. Anyone that didn't live in paradise, even if their house didn't burn down, we all together as a community went through something. Either your school is gone, your whole community is gone, just like where you grew up, it's gone. So I think we've all just been there for each other. I think we're all super, super close. We we definitely got closer. Like I, I would consider everyone at my school just like part of my family. The only thing normal for me right now is going to school. Like with breaks, not going to school, it just, it's a, life is a lot harder. So like sometimes it's hard to get up, it's hard to go to sleep, and I just think about seeing my friends. Yeah, I was going to say summer is coming up for you, summer break. Mm -hmm. What is that going to be like? Definitely a lot of people will be moving. Mid-March, we found out that our school will not be reopening um, next year. It's currently on a suspension. The school is mainly the reason why a lot of people are staying. A lot of people will be leaving because there's no reason to stay here anymore. We might move, and I think Ashlyn might move too. Like, no one really knows if they're staying or not. There's no for sure. Like, what my dad says is we just take it day by day. Like, we don't know what's going to happen the next day or the next. Summer break's going to be really hard because of all these, like, close friends I've made. They all understand what I went through. And then deciding what other school to go to. Just talking to other people that haven't gone through this, they, like, don't... It's just hard to connect with them because... I don't want people to think, like, I'm, like, broken or I'm, like, not mentally okay. I just I just want to be around other people that, like, are in the same state as me. Can you talk about that a little bit more? Um, being around people that haven't gone through this is pretty hard because they, like, they feel bad, but they, they just didn't go through it. They didn't, because if someone told me, like, one of my friends, they'd be like, oh, today sucks a lot. Like, I miss Paradise so much. 
I'm not going to be like, oh, sorry. I'm going to be like, me too. I'll just tell them what I miss. They'll tell me what we miss. And like, we'll just like talk about that. But talking to someone else, I'll be like, I miss my home. This is where I grew up. I miss it. They'll be like, oh, I'm so sorry. Like, just give constant sympathy. And I think we know we don't need sympathy. We just need someone to talk to. Most studies show that after like stuff like this, it really starts hitting after six months. And most people haven't talked about it. I know most of my friends don't talk about it. And I think just let them get it out. Like, don't even say, I'm sorry. Just be like, okay, like, okay. And then if they don't want to talk about it, act normal. Because I think what we all need right now is a sense of normalcy. It's really hard to see our principles and our staff go through this because they put their hearts and souls into this school to make it as perfect as it could be for these students. And just to see it all get torn away from them, like, we have hit rock bottom. Yeah. Like, we know what it's like to be at the bottom. And like our teacher said, we can only go up from here. With, like, the stress and seeing teachers cry and all this, there's been so much stress put on everyone this year. Like, every one of the students, even, like, five-year-olds, honestly, so much stress. And um, I think some of the teachers don't know how much we appreciate them because of all the stress we're going through, it's just hard to work. I don't think I would have been able to get through this without my teachers or like my friends from school. Our teachers have given us therapists and all of these different ways for us to get out what we needed to talk about. And that was because our teachers put in hours and hours of emailing other people to help us with that. Yeah, super the teachers have done so much for us. And um, I don't know how I could, like, ever thank them for what they did for us or how the school could thank them. I don't think we ever could. I'm just so grateful for everyone that we have. That was Ashlyn Miley and Abby Brown, freshmen at Achieve Charter High School. This is a one-hour special of After Paradise from North State Public Radio. Stay tuned. When we're back, we'll hear from those who have been on the ground doing work toward campfire recovery. You're listening to a one-hour special of After Paradise from North State Public Radio. I'm Sarah Bohannon. The trauma people faced on November 8, 2018, is one of the most concerning effects of this disaster. Those who work in mental health have been working hard to provide people with the support they need. That group of people includes Dr. Penny Sue Hignell, the coordinator of the Northern California Trauma Recovery Network, an organization that brought together over 80 specialized therapists over the last few months who have provided more than 400 campfire survivors with a therapy called eye movement desensitization reprocessing, usually referred to as EMDR. I spoke with Dr. Hignell about what she's been seeing over the last six months. 
In the first month and a half or so, we saw people individually, but after about the middle of December, we had already had 70 people wanting our services, so we had to switch to doing groups. The reason being because we can see eight to 10 campfire survivors in a group, and it's a similar protocol that we go through where EMDR changes the neural pathways in the brain and helps the brain adapt to the trauma of the fire. And what we have found is that we have on the average, over a 50% reduction in symptoms. And they've said things like, feel like I did before the fire, that they can sleep again, that one person said that uh, they were always thinking about the fire after we were done. They didn't think about the fire much anymore, and they no longer saw flames. One person was a teacher that we saw right in the beginning, and she said that the fire was no longer going to defeat her, that she was beating the fire. So we've had real good positive results. The therapy works the best if it's done in the first six months to keep it from getting going into PTSD. But now what's happening is people are calling and they're a little more desperate because they've thought that they would get better and they haven't. And that's because PTSD symptoms are starting to set in now. So you are actually seeing a lot of calls now, though, because people are starting to experience those PTSD symptoms. Right. They're calling up saying that they thought they would get better and they aren't sleeping well still. Uh, they're angry. They're frustrated. They're lashing out. Um, they're just seeing symptoms that they're having that are different than they've had before. This is a volunteer-based, the therapists who are working with the TRN. Are you seeing that volunteering wind, winding down now that it's been six months? Yeah, that's what I'm finding. I honestly think a lot of the therapists have uh, really served us a lot in this area and have come to serve. Probably about of the 85, we've had 45 therapists come here and serve us or see people in their area. But I think that the therapists are getting pretty worn out. And also the therapists here in the Chico area are full in private practice now. I mean, they started being full in private practice in January because there were so many campfire survivors that they were already either seeing or they wanted to see. Plus, we had some therapists that were from Paradise and in the TRN here and lost their homes. So it took them a while to get better. So it is kind of uh, slowly dwindling down, which you would expect. And then we need to get ready for the next fire season, wherever something might happen. Because this TRN is for the whole North Valley from Oakland to the Redding area. What are you worried about with this community, people who have experienced the campfire? I guess my greatest worry has always been that people don't realize the impact of the fire on them with regards to their brain. And they think that they can just suck it up or just put one foot in front of the other and they're going to get past the symptoms. And that is true for some people, but for most people, they're going to struggle. And my biggest worry has been that they won't get the services or get some services that will help their brain get past this. And they will end up experiencing it for the rest of their life. That's why I've tried real hard to meet the needs of these people and our TRN has and to get them in as quickly as possible and to get them seen. But I think that's my biggest concern.
That was Dr. Penny Sue Hignell speaking about EMDR services that are still available for survivors. You can learn more on our website, mynspr.org. With so many government and charitable groups helping survivors, it might come as a surprise that some are still falling through the cracks. Earlier this week, North State Public Radio's Mark Albert spent the day with one of a handful of super volunteers determined to lift others up. It's a bit before 9, Tuesday morning. A stone's throw from Jackie's Hilltop Cafe, a makeshift canteen, is serving up breakfast to all comers at the Megalia Pines Baptist Church. Just outside, Damien Kuypers and Calvin Hartzell man a checkpoint, dispensing cases of drinking water and lifting spirits of drivers with corny puns. Mel Content has been up for hours. Her co-pilot, Captain Jack Sparrow, a brindle pit bull, perches amidst a jumble of canned goods, medical supplies, tools, and empty gas cans packing her green GMC Yukon. The single mother from Antioch, practically a one-woman relief agency, is out making her rounds. So we have, we have a whole bunch of food. We have these pads for the burn survivor, Tara Hill, who has burned over 50% of her body. Um, we're going to hit her and Chico on the way to Gridley and drop these off to her. And then I have back here... We have five of the ten gas cans that I rotate through to IM's garden. So I have to get gas. I'll fill these up with gas and take these out there. I'm going to drop these crocs off at Old Miguelia Church. Um, they, add, they said they needed men's sizes. This is going to go to Dave, who actually is a survivor, who I'm bringing the trailer to in paradise. Um, all his tools burned and everything. So he's going to be working on trailers and just starting his tool collection back up. Over the past six months, content has become part logistics queen, part social worker, networking those who've fallen through the cracks with a growing cadre of donors. Spurred by texts from a son who escaped the flames, within 48 hours, content was rolling into a makeshift encampment at the Chico Walmart, doling out cots and warm clothes from a box truck packed to the gills. The needs are different now, but for many, just as important. After dropping off a couple boxes of donated croc sandals at Megalia Community Church, Content grabs some infant clothes off the racks at the church's impromptu thrift store for a single father 25 miles away in Concow. On the way out, there's a reunion of sorts as Content recognizes a familiar face, Michael Crowder, one of two men she introduced me to within 15 minutes who each cheated death rolling through the flames, saving their cherished Harley Davidsons. Oh my goodness, are you kidding me? Walmart parking lot, I had the guys pack you guys up and move out of there. Mel, I always have that yellow jacket on. How are you? Oh my God. I remember now. Yeah. And I think I was a little upset the way they were. My yeah, 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 how they were packing it, but yeah. they were getting it done for you. I remember you, yeah. Yeah. Um, we're doing fine. Oh, my gosh, good. Where are you guys staying now? Back in our house, it was safe. It wasn't touched. Oh, good. Just smoky. Just Almost back onto Skyway, the Yukon jerks to the shoulder. Doug Dawson and Tim Trailer are turning redwood planks into a decorative garden box for a large sign. They tell content they have everything they need, and we push on. At the First Christian Church, content hands Dave Hohenstein the donated tools and starts a list of additional pieces needed to connect a pump to a new drinking water tank. Using money she's raised, she's hired him to repair donated trailers. 
Down in the valley, content drops off medical supplies in Chapman Town with a woman still recovering from severe burns. Then it's off to Costco to fill gas cans for people in Concow still running generators for electricity. Up Highway 70, we check in at Yankee Hill Hardware to grab supplies for Dave. Doug Souders, the manager, tells me it was an open question whether to stay in business post-fire, but now trade is picking up, even though by his estimate two-thirds of the pre-fire residents are gone. Business in large water tanks is so fierce he can't keep them stocked. Look at the people that uh, manufacture in these tanks. They can't keep up. And the ones that uh, transporting them, I mean, it's, it's, it's good. Actually, we've, we've done pretty good since the fire. Checking in with several food pantries, content listens intently as volunteers relay rumors that certain food items and gift cards are being skimmed or diverted upstream, depriving those in Concow. She says she'll look into it. As Captain Jack Sparrow has a quick respite beside Lake Concow, content tells me she's also taken on a role as advocate, calling bureaucrats at FEMA, pleading for appeals on behalf of those rejected. FEMA's just like any other organization. It's who you get on the phone and what kind of mood they're in that day. And there's things that even the FEMA workers don't know that I know. They say, oh, we can't do that. I'm like, yes, you can. I've done it for three dozen other families. And they go check with their supervisor and they're like, oh, I guess we can do that. Deep into Concow, there's a welter of activity at IAM's garden. Two generators, Blair making enough juice to power a washer and dryer and hot showers for the local community. Just outside a cyclone fence gate, still adorned with melted plastic privacy slats, Ron Trout is milling lumber out of burnt-up trees on a portable sawmill. Content makes an extra effort to deliver for Terry and John Rubiolo, who dish out hot meals to neighbors from a trailer overlooking the burnt wreckage of their former home. Evening was fast approaching when Mel and I parted ways at Clear Creek Crossing. She, bound for Gridley for a few more stops. I ask what keeps her going, how she can put her life on hold. She tells me her children, Bryce and Jasmine, are grown and on their own, and that between savings, donations, and a bit of side work, she can focus. At this very moment, I feel compelled to go ahead and help because I'm in a place and a position that I can. So why wouldn't I? Sure, I could stop helping and still get rid of my house and pack up a bag and backpack through Europe. And maybe eventually I will. Maybe eventually I'll do it with my kids. But I can do this right now, so why not? People say, why? I say, why not? Mark Albert, North State Public Radio News. After the fire, the North Valley Community Foundation quickly became the repository for charitable donations from across the country, and in fact, from around the world. To date, the Butte Strong Fund has raised $53 million. So far, $11 million of that has been deployed for everything from emergency shelters to long-term housing. North State Public Radio's Tess Vigland spoke earlier this week with Foundation President Alexa benson Balavanis. Well, Alexa, uh, we are here now six months since the campfire, and I wonder if you could give us your perspective on where the recovery process is now, um, especially as someone who hears a lot from people who are in need. You know, every day there are reasons that we find hope and optimism within this recovery process. We are beginning to see some successes on the ground here in, in Chico and also in the region in terms of our ability to really come together and serve the the residents that were so deeply impacted. 
But the scale is overwhelming. The tragedy is overwhelming. And so although we have these successes now at the six-month mark, the task is pretty daunting. We have both housing and trauma that are really the critical factors that we're looking at. And we don't really have um, a system-wide approach to addressing either of those issues. So what we're doing day in and day out here at the North Valley Community Foundation is a lot of listening and a lot of convening, making sure we get stakeholders in, community partners in, and trying just to have the conversation of what's the very next best step we can take as a community to start addressing the kind of second wave of crisis that we're experiencing, which is folks are not stabilized in a home environment yet. We don't have FEMA trailers up yet. Uh, we have a lot of residents that are still um, on couches in hotels. And we know we can't even tend to the trauma that ha they have endured and their children have endured until we get them in stable home environments. So that's what we're, we're grappling with daily. And we're just trying to make sure that we understand who it is that's serving them, who's doing a good job serving them, and how can philanthropy play a role in making sure that they have the resources they need to do that adequately. Um, and th there's a lot of question marks still, even at the six-month mark. Are you finding, um, particularly this far out, six months out, I, I know there was talk of compassion fatigue, donor fatigue, um, even within a month after the fire. Um, I assume you're still seeing that now, and how do you push against that? I think that we respond when, um, like, all, like all of us do, we respond out of urgency when our brothers and sisters are hurting. You know, you see something acutely painful and we respond. That's our nature. So I don't know if it's compassion fatigue as much as it's many people are onto another urgent trauma or another crisis in their life. And rightfully so. Something else has, has taken their attention that needs immediate action. But it doesn't mean that this one is solved or resolved or settled in any way. It just means we're not thinking about it as a people at the forefront of our minds. And so the question really is, where are the opportunities where people can say, um, I want to make a meaningful difference in something, whether it's in making sure children have counseling services, whether it's healing through art therapy, you know, what is it at the second stage of this recovery process where people can get engaged again? And maybe it's not their money. Maybe it's taking the skills they've developed their entire life in a professional career and now giving it to the nonprofit sector or offering it um, to a family next door. I mean, what I think needs to happen at this stage is we need just an army of human beings to come together with whatever skills and talents they've developed and say, how does this apply to the recovery? How does this apply to helping uh, reduce the suffering here? If people have resources and want to give, of course, we have lots of projects and programs that need funding. But I think at this point, with this kind of trauma and pain, um, it's going to take a much more intimate relationship with recovery, and it's going to take thousands of people to do it. As a leader in this community, um, what is your greatest frustration right now with the recovery effort, with the government? Is there something that if you could wave a magic wand, you would just fix instantaneously? I think the most surprising thing for me is how long things take. You know, as, as um, somebody that's running a philanthropic 
institution, we, we really don't have, I guess, the same barriers and challenges. When we want to see something happen, we move relatively quickly. If there's a will and we have the resources, then it can be done. And so the idea that things take as long as they take at the government level is baffling to me. I'm not saying it's not justified. I'm sure there's lots of reasons. But it's just taking um, an enormous amount of time for the FEMA trailers to open up and for that group of people to be housed. We need them housed so that we can understand who else needs housing help. We don't even know yet how many of these FEMA trailers um, are going to house how many of the, the local residents in need. So it's just a variable that's maddening. So if I had a magic wand, it would be that. When you look at the fact that this week is six months, do you say to yourself, I can't believe it's been six months, it's, that's been so quick? Or is it a, this has been the longest six months ever? I think for most of us, this has been um, the longest six months of our lives. Um, the amount of suffering here, and most of us have had it, this fire impact us personally as well. The amount of suffering here is so acute and it's, it's so vast that it's a long, long season. And so although in some ways that you think, how could it be six months? It's been so long that if you told me it's been six years, I, I might believe you as well. Time has an interesting way of, I think, slowing down when something terrible is happening and maybe also speeding up. You know, it, it's there hasn't been a lot of time to reflect on it, but I can just tell you it's been a long season for a lot of us. And for those that are on couches and trying to figure out their insurance company and what they thought they had versus what they have, or God bless them, the ones that lost loved ones, I can't imagine how long the last six months have been. So I think our, our hope is just to put one step in front of the other, one foot in front of the other, and know that good will come in the next six months and probably more pain too, but we're going to do it together. Alexa, thank you. Thank you. That was North Valley Community Foundation President Alexa Benson-Valavanis speaking with North State Public Radio's Tess Figland. While pain and suffering are clearly still a part of this recovery, one thing that is apparent is that there is also still a lot of hope here. We put that question to those we interviewed for this special. What brings you hope for the future? I think there's a lot of opportunities for the future. Um, Our place is okay. I just want to see the town get fixed up. You know, paradise got it the worst. For the future, I have a lot of hope because I know that... The town is not gone. Like, there is definitely still so many buildings down there. Where they're still gonna, it's still gonna be there 20 years later. It's still gonna be there. It's the people, the people I know, and their attitude about things. I just want to be able to find, for me, I just want to be able to find a sense of normalcy. The hope for me really comes from the individuals and their internal process, not from anything um, that I can point to in terms of the recovery work or the collaboration or the partnerships. It's really just the human ability to be resilient and to survive. Without faith, I don't know 
I don't know where I would be right now. Um, is to have a home, a kitchen, a bathroom. I want to get me back, and I can't do that living here. I need space. I need a comfort zone. I get up every morning because I want to get out there and I want to get us all a house, um, something that we can be proud of again. And, you know, my family definitely keeps me motivated. It's just like that green grass out there. It comes back. People will come back. They always have. No, it'll, it'll take a while for people to get used to the, what it looks like now compared to what it, uh, it did look like. But, yeah, they'll come back. That inspires me that we can um, find a way every day to get up and to do our best. And oftentimes we do it for our children and we do it for our partners and we do it for our neighbors. Um, and that's what, that's what gives me hope. And I think that's what we talk a lot about here is just the human ability to move forward even in the face of something so catastrophic. I'm really excited for the day that I can make my own decision if I want to come back or not. Because right now, it's, it's what's best for the family, not what we want to do. It's just what's best for the family. Uh, we are human beings. Uh, what we do best, if we allow ourselves, is to create community. So we have a wonderful opportunity. Butte County is filled with very well-thinking, uh, very open-hearted people. Uh, in all of our meetings, uh, there's not been a whole lot of divisiveness or headbutting. It's more a matter of how do we gather the resources and leverage what we have. So, you know, the, the, the promise is, is that uh, we have good, sturdy uh, values and people in the area, and I have great confidence that we can solve any problem we set our minds to. That letting go of what was is hard, but people are doing it, and they're looking to the future. And then also, just listen. Hear the birds? That's the sound of paradise. You can hear some work trucks in the way background, but when they're all gone, it's those birds and the wind rustling in the trees that make it paradise. And that is our program for today. It is also our last. If you've been listening weekly to After Paradise, we thank you so much. You can find all of our past episodes on our website, mynspr.org, on iTunes, and on SoundCloud. Also, just because this show is stopping does not mean we're going away. Our community will be recovering from the campfire for years. And Paradise, Nagalia, Concow, Yankee Hill, Butte Creek Canyon, we plan on being there reporting alongside you every step of the way during that recovery. Please continue to ask us questions and tell us what you need to know. After Paradise is produced by Mark Albert, Phil Wilkie, and Tess Figland. Adam Raguzia composed our theme music. Our engineer is Matt Fiddler. A special thanks to Capital Public Radio and Jane Lindholm. I'm Sarah Bohannon, and this is After Paradise from North State 